Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. So good morning. Uh, if we've not met, my name is Drew. I'm a pastor here at Redeemer. It's good to see you this morning. We're in the middle of a series about living by faith and not by sight. The person who lives by sight uses, or excuse me, they, they use their circumstances as a lens through which they look at everything else. Their circumstances determine their theology. So they would, you know, a person who's kind of trapped in this would say something like, well, my life is like this, and so God must be like this. Something like that. The person who lives by faith is the opposite. They use their theology as a lens through which they look at their circumstances. Their theology determines the way they think and, and look at the world. And what you have here in Hebrews chapter 11, we've been going kind of verse by verse almost through this, through this passage. You have case study after case study of people who came up against some kind of challenge, some kind of suffering they had to go through some really big, scary thing, but in the middle of it, as they face it, they're supernaturally able to see beyond it to other possibilities and then to act accordingly because with man it might be impossible, but with God all things are possible. That could have gotten an amen, but we'll just keep going from there, okay? Because that is, that is something that we should rejoice in. And knowing that, at least for them, it was something they rejoiced in. And knowing it, they did not shrink back. They pressed forward into the hard stuff and endured through it. But I want to say again what we've said all along. That does not make them exceptional. It just makes them examples for us to follow. So my question to you this morning is, what is the by-faith journey that you're on? If you think about your life what you're going through right now, what is the by-faith journey that you're on? If you're a Christian, you are an heir of the inheritance of faith. You are meant to listen to the accounts of these ancient people here and be encouraged in your own by-faith journey. And so week after week, we've been looking at these stories, and this morning we come to Moses. Moses was the man who led Israel out of slavery in Egypt and to the threshold of the Promised Land. He's one of the most prominent figures in the Old Testament scriptures, And so we see here in these verses, we're going to read together in Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 23, you're going to see four scenes from Moses' life that illustrate his faith. And so let's read together, beginning just there in verse 23. We're going to read all the way to verse 28. That's going to be all we really look at this morning because there's so much material here. This is a little intimidating. Uh, So let's read together. By faith, Moses, when he was born was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the king, the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch him. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, it it breaks up really nicely there. Four scenes introduced by just the phrase, by faith. There are four different parts of his life, four different examples from his life of what it means to live by faith. And we're going to look at each in turn. But again, uh, we're still trying to make up for some of the time we lost uh, in months past with this series, and so we just have one shot at this. This is a lot of material. It's going to feel like drinking from a fire hose. I just want to apologize in advance, but there's some important things for us to learn here. It's just kind of a reminder of some things we've already seen uh, in, what, in this whole chapter of what it means to live by faith. Four points. They build on one another, 
to encourage you in your own faith story. I want you to see here that faith, faith has these four things. There's a posture to it. There's an accounting in it. There's a sight. Faith gives you a sight. And there's a theology that really has to prevail if you're going to live by faith. So when you're, when you're faithing, it means these, these four things. It means you're, able to, you're supernaturally able to be fearlessly obedient. Secondly, choosing the greater reward. Thirdly, always, no matter what's going on, seeing the invisible God. And fourthly, your heart bowing to mercy. So those are the four things as we walk together through this text. Let's, let's do so uh, in turn, okay? First, let's look at this first scene. And the first scene we're, we're given here is Moses' birth. It's found in Exodus chapter 2. It's summarized here in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 23 where you read this. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful they were not afraid of the king's edict. And I think the lesson in this particular scene that we're given here of Moses' life is that faith is this supernatural ability to be fearless in the face of severe consequences. We talked a lot about fear in the past few weeks because it is the opposite of faith. And so here it is again, actually twice. You see it in this verse, verse 23, where we're told that Moses' parents were not afraid and went against the king's edict and hid their son. But then it picks back up in verse 27. It says of Moses himself that he was also not afraid of the king's anger. And so you have this idea of fear being replaced by faith in both instances. But what this means is that the root of sin is often fear. The root of obedience is faith. The root of sin is fear. And these things kind of go back and forth. Christianity, so, is not really concerned with what's happening in the outside. It's, it's mostly concerned with what's happening in the inner parts of your life. Not just your actions and the things that you end up doing, but your heart. I mean, Jesus said, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. And he was talking about the heart. He said in that chapter there in Matthew's gospel that behavior flows out of whatever internal treasury you possess in your heart, whatever's being stored up in the inner parts of your life is going to eventually make its way out. Your heart is a repository. And here's the, what I think we can see from this text. We're being told here that if our hearts are a repository, then we can be either accumulating faith or fear. It can be building up inside of us. And moral failings happen when the accumulated fear bursts the dam and begins to flow out into the external parts of your life. Spiritual growth happens as faith begins to displace fear at the root, as you accumulate a reservoir of faith, not fear, that you can draw on. That's the lesson here. So let me also say this. We are, not, we are naturally sinful, which means that we are most naturally full of fear, not faith. Uh, we don't have to work hard at being afraid. <laughs> it grows out of the natural soil of our, of our lives, of our hearts. If you do nothing, just like in your yard, if you do nothing, the weeds will come. If you do nothing, then fear will take over and choke out everything else in your life. But courage is something that has to be planted. It has to come from outside of you, from God, of course, right? So fear is ultimately, if you think about the vertical dynamic of our life, fear is the fallout of our broken relationship with God. But God himself has come to, to you know, work against that fear. He has come in the person of the Holy Spirit who is called the encourager, which is a word that describes a friend who comes to walk alongside of you with words. And that same word 
Parakaleo is used to describe the way that we're to be encouraging and befriending one another because we also get courage horizontally. It has to be planted horizontally in our lives from friends and people who love us. I'll think about that word for a minute, encourage. Encourage. What are you doing when you're encouraging somebody? You're depositing courage into that person. You're building up their faith reservoir through your presence and your kindness and especially your words. And so it's a reminder that we are powerful influences on one another, either to encourage or to discourage. We can be either putting in courage or taking out courage. And when you discourage someone with unkindness or unkind words or lack of words, it's like opening the stopper in the tub and letting all the water drain out. That You just watch their faith just kind of go away. When you encourage, you're dumping buckets of courage and filling the other person with faith. I know it's not part of, a key part of the text, but as I read these four or five verses together, it seems to me that Moses' fearlessness in verse 27 is really presented to us as the echo of his parents' fearlessness in verse 23. And it's a, it's a good reminder that kids take their cues from their parents. That they learn either faith or fear from watching mom and dad. And, you know, a family is just like any other system. And Edwin Friedman has written about how toxic, toxic anxiety can spread through systems, families, and friend groups, and organizations, and even cultures and nations. Fear is highly infectious. And the only way to health is for, in the middle of all of that toxic anxiety playing off of one another, the only way to health is for some non-anxious leader to emerge who is able to remain differentiated enough to not get swept up into the collective nervousness of the group. The world is increasingly anxious, but we don't have to be. We, because of the promise of faith, we can be the non-anxious leaders the world so desperately needs. And so that's one of the reasons why it's so crucial, why, why talking about these things is so important, to be able to live by faith and not consumed by fear. But another reason is it's because faithfulness is hard, and it's only going to get harder in the future. It says here, that Moses' parents, verse 23, were not afraid of the king's edict. And that's a reference to Pharaoh's genocidal measure. If you remember the story in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, he, he decreed that all sons born to Hebrew slaves be thrown into the Nile River. And it says in Exodus, if you go back and read in that text, it says that they disobeyed Pharaoh. They feared God, it says, and they did according to God's word, not Pharaoh's word. Severe consequences, though. And that is a choice that more and more Christians are going to have to be faced with. God's word or cultural doctrine. Because every day it feels like the two of those things get further apart, doesn't it? And there's an increasing sense that there's going to be consequences for living faithfully. It's harder now than ever before for our kids to be distinctively Christian. I have three teenagers, I can tell you from firsthand experience... Because the social cost of obedience is so great. The narratives are so powerful. Dissent is not tolerated. But the problem is it's only going to get harder and harder to obey God and not man and to live with the consequences. Rejection and loneliness and being canceled. <laughs> and the social outcast you know, uh, status that's placed upon you. Probably even persecution. But this text says that it's possible to face all of that and still be fearless. That's the posture of faith. 
Secondly, so that's the first scene. You see this, this uh, supernatural ability to be fearless in the face of severe consequences. But let's build on that. And let's see the second scene here is when Moses, as he begins to grow up, he identifies himself not with the palace that he's been raised in, but with the Israelite slaves that he knows are his true people. Now, this is found in Exodus chapter 2, but it's summarized here in Hebrews chapter 11, and this is the bulk of the, of the text, verses 24 through 26, where it says, By faith Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for the reward. And the lesson here is that Faith embraces, part of, the, part of the way fearlessness can come is that it, you have to embrace a radically different valuation of the good life. There is an accounting to faith that is different than the accounting of, of life in other, in other ways. Moses was raised as a prince of Egypt, and yet we're told here he chose loyalty to his own people who were slaves. He had all of the opportunity and wealth and power that you can imagine, and it says that he gave it all away and chose instead to be mistreated along with the rest of the Israelites. He walked away from his privilege. This is actually what the wording says there. He walked away from his privilege to be oppressed. Intentionally. Now I want to make sure we understand. Moses had a choice. And he chose a life of suffering. He preferred reproach over all the treasures of Egypt. It's an amazing phrase, really. And Egypt is significant in the Bible as both a place and a metaphor. It was the place where God rescued the people from slavery. But even after he rescued them... If you read the story, they kept wanting to go back. Even after they were no longer slaves, they were on their own and free. They wanted to go back. And so it became a metaphor for that, for unbelief, for wanting to return to the slavery that they had in Egypt, of wanting to choose safety and predictability and comfort over, even though it meant slavery, over, over trusting God to provide in the wilderness. But faith moves in the opposite direction. So listen to the way the faithful are described here later in the chapter. If you have a Bible, you can turn. I have to flip the page to verse 35, but it says this, of just kind of uh, the paradigmatic life of faith. It says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise to a better life, and others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn in two, killed with the sword. They went about in goatskins. Destitute, afflicted, mistreated, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves. And again, this is not describing a life that is extraordinary. That's just the life of faith. Hebrews 13 says this, Jesus suffered outside the city gate. Therefore, let us go outside the camp to bear the reproach that he endured. Uh, Dieter Bonhoeffer, the German pastor and martyr who opposed Hitler in Nazi Germany, he wrote this pretty famous words. He says, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. It meets us at the beginning. And those weren't just words. He lived it. In uh, 1939, as the war was just getting going, uh, and before, you know, I, I can't remember exactly, I'm not a history major, I'm going to make a faux pas there. I was going to say before America entered the war, I'm not really sure when we did, but uh, like up here in front of you now, but at the very beginning of the war, he, uh, his friends prevailed upon him to leave for the U.S. And he was able to get out of the country. The Nazis were coming for him, and he, they snuck him out of the country and got him to safety, you know, on the other side of the Atlantic. Uh, but within hours of disembarking in New York City, in the harbor there, he had a room to rent. He went up into the room, and, and as, he, as he settled in for the night, uh, he began to wrestle in his soul, and he, within hours, became convinced that he had made the wrong decision. 
and he wrote to an American friend uh, in the days that would follow. He said, I am enjoying a few weeks of freedom, but I feel I must go back to the trenches. And 26 days later, he did. He boarded a boat and went back across the Atlantic, and uh, within just a few years, he was executed, and imprisoned and executed. Uh, and, and so uh, he wrote another friend who was kind of re, you know, reliving this and thinking about it. He, he just wrote of his decision. He said, he abandoned in all clarity many great possibilities for his own development in the free countries and returned to the dismal slavery and dark future of Germany. And so like Moses, he considered the reproach of Christ preferable to a life to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that he might enjoy in America. And what I want to say to you is that a similar decision is thrust upon all who say they believe. So we have to ask, how do you do it then? I mean, if that, if you're really, if that really is the essence of the life of faith, how do you do it? And it's, it says here, you can't without faith. It's by faith that all of these things happen. By faith, Moses was able to refuse to be called Pharaoh's son and choose instead to be mistreated with the people and so forth. Bonhoeffer did not return because he had extraordinary faith. He just had faith. Faith makes it possible because faith allows you to live differently than those who with no faith. And in this case, to have a different valuation of the good life. A purely materialistic view of the world would say, this life is all there is, so get as much out of it as you can. A purely materialistic view of the world would say, that's a silly decision that that man made to end his life so quickly you know, you should avoid suffering at all costs. You should do everything you can to wring out of life whatever pleasure and happiness you can find here. But faith says no. No, that's not it at all. Because Hebrews 13, 14 says, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And so the argument that's made in Hebrews 13 is this. Jesus suffered for us, so we go and we suffer for him, bearing his reproach for, it says, because in doing so we're seeking the city that is to come. In other words, this world isn't all there is. In fact, there's nothing lasting here. It's all passing away. And the pleasures of sin, we're told here, do you, know, do you see that? The pleasures of sin are fleeting. They're not lasting. So if you, if you seek worldly treasures, the problem is, is you may get them and enjoy them, but it will just be for a few years and then they'll be gone. But often, they are robbing you of the real lasting joy in the life to come. What, what we're told here is the reward. You see verse 26? He was looking for the reward. That there was something still coming that would be a reward to him. That there was something coming, a weight of glory is the way the Bible describes it, that would be so great and so satisfying and so lasting that it would make whatever suffering we experience in this life feel light and momentary in comparison. And so to seek treasure in this life and lose it in the next is bad accounting. Because everything here is fleeting. It doesn't last. But there, we'll have more of it and it'll go on forever and ever and ever. And so the good life then, the good life, if you're looking at life through the lens of faith, the good life is a life that maximizes your reward in heaven. Isn't that what Jesus said? Don't store up treasures on earth. Store up treasures in heaven. Third, and the third thing we see here is that as these build, these continue to build on one another, the third scene is the scene most commentators and scholars say it's the burning bush. It's found in Exodus chapter 3, but it's summarized here in verse 27 where it says, By faith, Moses again, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. And so again, 
how do you fearlessly move into and choose lives, you know, lives of chosen suffering? Well, you have to have this component as well. And here we learn that faith sees what cannot otherwise be seen. You have to have, you have to live with the sight that faith can bring into your life. And so a life of chosen suffering, it requires a certain inner poise and resolve, a staying power. And that's that word endure in this verse. It's actually a really important word. We've not talked a lot about it as we've gone through this text, but all throughout Hebrews 10 and 11, very, very important word. Uh, and it, and it, it refers to a person's strength to keep going when it gets hard, to not shrink back. And so the narrative structure of the gospel is death and then resurrection. Jesus died and was raised and if you believe in Jesus, then your life's going to take the same shape. You're going to find yourself going down into death and being raised on the other side. Death, then resurrection. Or you could say it this way. There's always a cross and then a joy on the other side. That's Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. But the problem is you have to go through the cross to get the joy. There are no, root, you know, there are no roots around. I said there's no 417 around downtown, downtown Orlando. You've got to go straight through it. You have to endure the traffic. You have to endure the construction. There's no way around. You have to go through these things, go through the cross, which means you have no choice. You have to be invested in becoming a person that is able to endure. You have to become a person that possesses sufficient internal strength of character to do the hard thing and keep going and not give up. Now, let me go ahead and warn you. For some of you, this will be good news. For some of you, it'll bring a sigh of consternation, but I want to warn you that I've started reading Lord of the Rings again, so get ready for a steady stream of sermon illustrations. I'm just going to get it out of the way. Maybe you should just read it with me over the coming weeks. That would be a good idea. But it's been 15 years or so uh, since I've last read that book, and I've been really apprehensive about starting it again, honestly, because it's such a commitment. Uh, it's, a re it's, a long, it's long, and it's it's really slow at times. There are chapters that describe long marches from place to place with just incredible detail, and it just gets wearisome. It moves slow at times. The actual, the best critique people, or the most consistent critique people give of the book, which was called the book of the century, was that it was too long. When somebody asked Tolkien about it, he said, no, the problem with the book is it's not long enough, which I find funny because... What people don't realize is that the long length, the slow pace, it actually is part of what Tolkien is trying to do. It's part of his point. And his point is that the true heroics of Frodo and the company was their ability to endure. Was their ability to not turn back, but to slog on day after weary day, facing every obstacle with quiet determination. And it's, it's such a foreign thing. It's become such a foreign thing in modern civilization, which demands that we have everything now without having to wait or suffer for it. But we read here, by faith, Moses endured, seeing him who is invisible. And normally what happens is as the bad stuff begins to accumulate, you start to get overwhelmed because everywhere you look, all you see is the negative, the obstacles. Anybody else like that? That is so, that's so me, that's what I do. I, especially as I start to get weighed down, I start to look around and all I can see is all the, the, the negative stuff, all the bad stuff. I can't see any of the good stuff and it just starts to, close in on me because you know it's just so easy to become that way but faith responds differently it has this ability to see beyond what can be seen it understands there's always more that meet than meets the eye now there's so many examples of this in the bible but perhaps the best one is in second kings chapter six and they were told of a story about elijah elisha the prophet and his servant they were in a city called dothan not in alabama by the way it's in another part of the world okay if you know dothan alabama uh, but they're in this city. The king of Syria 
has come. He's trying to capture Elisha because Elisha keeps tipping off the Israelites and, and ruining his plans. And so he's coming after Elisha. And Elisha and his servant, they wake up in the morning and the king is coming. And in the middle of the night, he's come with his troops and surrounded the city. And so when the servant woke and he looked out, he saw the city surrounded by an army with horses and chariots. And there was no way to escape. And he runs and he tells Elisha, we're, we're doomed, we're in trouble. Uh, it, this is really bad. But then Elisha wakes up and he looks out and this is what he says. He says, don't be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then he prayed, and here was his prayer. Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And then it says, the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire. Presumably an angelic army. Now, this is not what the, story, this is not what the sermon's about. Don't get caught up in the particulars here. The point of that story for us is just this, that there is an invisible world that coexists alongside of the visible, and there's always more happening in the invisible world that goes unknown unless you have faith, unless faith opens your eyes to see. Take courage with that. But notice also the text doesn't say Moses saw the invisible. Look at what it says very clearly. Verse 27, it says, he saw him who is invisible. And so at the burning bush in Exodus 3, Moses learned God's name. He came to know God personally. And the Bible often refers to this close relationship that he had with the Lord. For example, Exodus 33 says, The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Of course, Moses wrote that. But he, he's describing what his relationship with God felt like. He said that he, it felt like just having a great conversation with a friend. Now, you could translate this verse here in verse 27. Moses kept the one who is invisible continually before his eyes. And that is the key to having the internal strength to endure, to know God by name and then to know that he is always working behind the scenes. There's always more happening in the invisible world that goes unknown unless faith opens your eyes to see. And then what you do is you work hard to keep God as, as the center of your attention and focus and view your circumstances and everything else uh, in, in peripheral vision, not the other way around. See, what happens to us is it can become the other way around. We can get so focused on whatever hard thing it is we're going through that God begins to, to move out to the periphery. That's unbelief. Faith says, no, I'm going to keep my eyes on the one who is not seen otherwise and look at everything else peripherally. And that leads to the fourth thing, the fourth scene here. That is the most well-known. It's the Passover, and it's found in Exodus 12, but it's summarized here in verse 28. The last time we're told of Moses' faith, by faith Moses kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch him. And so if, if God is going to be the center of your focus uh, and your attention and you're going to see everything else peripherally, you've got to know what he's like. You've got to know the kind of person that he is, and that is this last lesson that faith Faith is, is what allows us to know that God is above all merciful. There's a theology of faith. Because at the Passover, Moses and the people were confronted with God's wrath against sin. That's what that whole story is about. God demanded the life of every firstborn in Egypt. Every Egyptian family, every Jewish family, even the firstborn of all the animals. Because there is a sin debt that we owe to him. All of us. It doesn't matter whether you grew up in church or not. And the payment is death. You know, years ago, in, in 2003, I remember the three hurricanes that came through Polk County. The first one, Charlie, put an oak tree through the back part of our house, literally through the back part of our house. 
and, uh, and it was traumatic and terrifying and all of that. But what was even worse is, of course, then just maybe, I don't even remember, it felt like three days later. But, you know, in the coming weeks, Francis came and then Jean came. And I just remember feeling so helpless because here I was with literally a tarp covering this huge hole in the back of my house. And these hurricanes are bearing down upon us and there's absolutely nothing we can do. Nothing you can do. And, I, and that is somewhat of the feeling that we should feel reading this text, that there's a hurricane of judgment heading right for us, and there's nothing we can do. We can't be good enough to avoid it. There's nothing we can do to prop up ourselves against the gale force winds of God's justice that are coming our way. But God said, but God intervened, and he said, he did something here. He said to his people, take a lamb and kill the lamb and sprinkle the blood on the door frames of your houses. And he said, the destroyer who's coming would see the blood and pass over the house, of, and the firstborn would be spared. And so in every house in Egypt that night, there was either a dead son or a dead lamb. And this, of course, points us to God's ultimate work to save us in Jesus. Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was sacrificed on the cross, just like the lambs at Passover. His blood was shed to satisfy God's wrath against sin. And to have faith means that you've stopped relying on your own strength or on your own moral record, and instead you're relying upon Jesus. All of your confidence comes from what he has accomplished for you, not whatever you might have done that people, other people look at and think is pretty great. You put all of your hope for the future on his shoulders and not on yours. And the ultimate lesson of the Passover is that God's mercy triumphs over just judgment. And that's the theology of faith. It's to know that God is most true to himself, most true to his heart. God is above all merciful. Dane Ortland has written this great book, which you should read. It's called Gentle and Lowly. He quotes a Puritan writer, Thomas Goodwin, as saying this. He says, mercy may in some respect be said to be more natural to God than acts of justice. There is something in judgment that is contrary to him. When he exercises acts of justice, it is for a higher end. It is not simply for the thing itself. There's always something in his heart against it. Then he quotes Jonathan Edwards, who says, God delights in mercy. Judgment is a strange work. He delights in mercy. Now, they're just saying, I'm sorry to quote so many people here, but I, I want to make sure, because this, this feels like this can't be true, and I just want you to see how, how true it is in the way that Christians have described it through the centuries, because they're really just saying what John Calvin said. So even John Calvin said this. This, this man who's thought to have been so stern and austere and have produced a theology of a stern and austere God, here's what he said. He said, God is slow to anger, Inclined toward mercy. Here you have the true character of God. When he punishes, it is almost quasi against his nature. Not that it is any more improper for God to punish than it is for him to be gracious. He only wants to open his heart to us if we will permit him. He wills to be known as good and merciful, and it is in that that his glory principally shines. That's amazing. It's an amazing quote. And here's what it means. Faith trusts God's heart no matter what. That's what faith is. Faith trusts God's heart no matter what because it has become convinced that his heart is full of mercy. That he is, above all, merciful. And so as we close this morning, listen again to Dane Ortland. He says this. He says, we need to understand that however long we've been walking with the Lord, whether we've never read the whole Bible or have a PhD in it, we have a perverse resistance to this. Out of his heart flows mercy. Out of ours reluctance to receive it. He is open-armed. We stiff-arm. 
our naturally decaffeinated views of God's heart might feel right. But this deflecting of God's yearning heart does not reflect Scripture's testimony about how God feels towards his own. Listen to this. This is so great. He says, The Bible takes us by the hand and leads us out from under the feeling that his heart for us wavers according to our obedience. And then he just says, Repent of your small thoughts of God. Repent of your small thoughts of God. Repent and let him love you. That's where our repentance begins this morning too. And so would you pray with me as we close our time together this morning? So Father, I pray that you would just meet us right there at that point where we would confess to you that so much of the dysfunction and the powerlessness of our lives is because we are still laboring under wrong ideas about who you are. We're still, we're still living in servile fear because of how wrong we've been about your heart. And so would you, by your spirit, bring the correction into our own hearts, the understanding that uh, your heart for us is greater than we've ever imagined. That even in our sins, yes, there's judgment coming for sin, but you have made a way for all who would be saved to come to you because... That judgment is your strange work, but you delight in mercy. And so I pray for all of us that we would turn towards you, being convinced yet again that your heart is full of mercy and come and find the strength to take the weight that has been, that, that so consistently sits upon our shoulders and transfer it to yours, the weight of our sin, the weight of, um, of the expectations of obedience in our lives, the weight of all of the fears we have about our future, that we would just give it all to you. That as we close this this time together, that you would move, maybe as we came, you were on the periphery of our vision, maybe that you would move right into the center, that you would be uh, the focus and the intention of this quiet moment we have, and that our that our repentance would begin just there. That we would turn back to the truth that you reveal about yourself turn back to the greatness of your heart for us and may it cause us to erupt in song celebrating you giving thanks for your great love for us and then may that propel us into a life of chosen suffering, fearlessness in the face of whatever consequences may come because of our obedience to you that's what we need, so come do that work now we pray in Jesus name, amen amen, so here's a promise to stand on as Jesus sends us now into the world uh, he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. And surely, behold, he says, I will be with you always to the end of the age. That's what these words of benediction mean. And so receive them as he sends us now uh, to go, uh, hopefully encouraged in our own by faith story, okay? To go uh, to live lives that will glorify and honor him. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.